Sign up to The Economist for in-depth curated expert analysis of world events and topics ranging from business and culture to science and technology. You'll get the weekly digital edition, online-only articles, curated newsletters on politics, the markets, science, culture and China, and full access to The Economist Podcast Plus. The Economist is independent journalism for independent thinking. Go to economist.com and get your first month free. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Hello and welcome to The Bunker. I'm Seth Table. With the indictment of Donald Trump, it's perhaps a surprise to learn about what he hasn't been charged with given some of the earliest Trump scandals related to lurid allegations around Russian influence and Russian compromat. One person who knows all about the dark side of Russian influence operations is the veteran investigative journalist Mark Hollingsworth, and he's here today. Mark's latest book, Agents of Influence, tells the story of how the KGB subverted Western democracies over several decades. Mark, welcome to The Bunker. Thank you very much. It looks an enormously fun book. <laughs> well, um, I should say you've previously written books on quite a wide range of subjects, um, MPs, sleaze, Dennis Thatcher's business dealings and London grad. Um, how did you first get interested in a topic like this? So I, I wrote a book about Russian oligarchs called um, London Grad. So I'm very familiar with Russia. And what happened was that after the 2016 American presidential election and the allegations of Russian interference uh, meddling in the in that election, uh, I thought to myself, well, did the KGB, did the Russian security services do the same thing in previous presidential elections uh, prior to 2016? So I did a bit of basic research and found that there was some evidence for the fact that the KGB, as it then was, did interfere and try and influence uh, and secretly fund former presidential candidates going way back to 1944, and certainly were trying to influence American politics and UK and uh, European politics going way back to really after the 1917 Russian Revolution. Yes, I mean, let's follow that through, actually. Tell us a bit more about some of these presidential candidates, because you start out with uh, Henry Wallace in 44. Yes, yeah, so in some ways, the most extraordinary case was Henry Wallace, who was uh, vice president to under Franklin Roosevelt until 1944. And then he was a radical left-wing Democrat, but he was actually vice president of the United States. And what happened was that moderate Democrats found a way of basically deselecting him as vice president in 1944. But he stayed on as a cabinet minister uh, after 1944. And at that time, he agreed to have a meeting with uh, Russian intelligence officers in Washington, D.C. And he, he re revealed secret information and they discussed possibility or funding or backing his uh, future presidential campaigns. And at the time, he was the Commerce Secretary in the US government and had until recently just been vice president. And he didn't say no to this and there were no discussions and all the rest of it. And it didn't actually 
as far as we know, it didn't actually come to fruition, even though he stood as an independent candidate in the 1948 presidential election. But if he had succeeded, uh, if he had uh, retained his position as vice president of the United States, it's not an exaggeration to say that the Russian intelligence agencies, which was then called NKVD, would have had someone second most powerful man in the world as their one of their agents. So this really is nothing new. If, if we backtrack a little, I, I should say that everybody's got a very firm image of how spying works, whether it's from the glamour of the James Bond films or from the grittiness of John le Carre. Which of these is closer to the truth, particularly around the KGB? Well, I think uh, the, the area that is closer to the truth is probably honey trapping mm -hmm. and surveillance. Uh, and one of the chapters in the book is called Seduction and Surveillance. And uh, that's where people assume that if you go to Russia, you know, and you go stay in a hotel in Moscow, then your hotel room is going to be back. During the Cold War, that was definitely the case, mm. particularly if you're a Western businessman or a politician. Um, so I think the preconceived image based on James Bond movies and John le Carre novels that uh, the Russians are always involved in trying to uh, following you and involved in honey trapping and blackmail and surveillance. I think that's basically there is a lot of substance to that because it was almost institutionalized by the KGB. I think probably the myth of the KGB being brilliant intelligence gatherers is exaggerated. I think actually, although they try to recruit agents within the British government and in NATO and in the US. And I think they had some success. But actually, I think that's probably uh, exaggerated in terms of trying to recruit agents because of the evidence that I've found there's actually a lot of the time they couldn't really penetrate the British establishment completely. And so they would make things up. Mm. And so there was this whole game of, in, of a sort of what they call the, the, the game between uh, KGB and MI5 and MI6 about what was really happening. Yes, I mean, there's, it's quite clear in your book, on the one hand, you've got the um, surveillance and seduction working hand in hand to support each other. But that depends upon somebody wanting to actually keep a secret. And there are some quite interesting cases I seem to remember about uh, people who are actually quite forthcoming <laughs> about what they've done in Russia and said, yes, it's true. I, you can't blackmail me. Yes. Yeah. I mean, I think uh, when it comes to the blackmail and the, and the honey trapping, certainly the cases, particularly of, of men who were surprisingly who were gay when at a time when it was home, when it was a criminal offense in the 1950s and 60s, some of the victims of the KGB honey trapping and, and blackmail were actually not just gay, but heterosexual as well, would actually say, Okay, you've got me, <laughs> but I'm I'm going to tell the Foreign Office or I'm going to tell the the CIA, and then they would just say, okay, you've 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 trapped me, um, but you know, do your worst, as it were, and so that happened a lot. And the flip side you mentioned was around um, just making stuff up. Uh, perhaps say a little bit more about that. Yes, well, I think the thing that that surprised me, even though I've written about. The intelligence world for for many years. I've written books about MI5. Uh, I'm very familiar with that world. What surprised me was the actual the level of uh, fabricating documents that I didn't realize that the KGB forged so many documents. They had a virtually a whole unit uh, during the Cold War, which basically literally fabricated documents, letters, tapes, uh, memos, and they would just make stuff up. 
and then they would just circulate it. And they didn't mind too much if, if, they, if the journalist who received it or the government officials who received it realized immediately that it was a hoax. They didn't mind that too much. They would just plant seeds mm. all over the world. And what they, they liked to do, the strategy, was to leak a, a document that would fit the preconceived political agenda of the country that they would give it to. So a country like Ghana in Africa, where, you know, during the Cold War, a lot of African countries in the Middle East, you know, and even in India strong communist parties, you, you give them a fake document saying that the CIA are planning to overthrow your country, then you, it's like a lot of things in life, if you want to believe it, you'll believe it. Mm. So there was a lot of that, uh, which I found quite interesting and revealing. Yes, it was very clear from the book that um, the KGB's objective wasn't necessarily to be believed in itself, but so doubt, uh, yes. for that doubt and discord to sort of um, immobilize a political system. In many yeah, ways. That's exactly. I mean, they, they, they were not... Uh, naive enough to think that they, by distributing a fake document, it was going to overthrow uh, a capitalist country. But it was really about sowing doubt, planting seeds of doubt, destabilization, and just creating chaos, confusion, doubt, uh, any kind of to, to weaken the country, you know, the, the main, what they call the main adversary, which was mainly the United States, but they really tried to influence any NATO country in that way. And if we cast our minds back to the Cold War and sort of put our minds in the position of, of the KGB at the time, some of it does seem to come out of this communist mindset of capitalist democracies are weak in certain ways, let's latch on to their vulnerability. And so the the um, decision-making of free and fair elections is seen as a vulnerability that's ripe for exploitation in that way. That that's right. That's a good point, because basically the KGB and, and the Soviet Union believed that the West were weak and that the, the elections were actually a sign of their weakness. And that was their vulnerable point, but they could be disrupted by creating chaos and tension and creating divisions within those countries. And in that way, you could weaken capitalism. And it would just kind of, they thought it would actually crumble through all this sort of chaos almost. Um, and that was certainly their strategy. And they were quite comfortable. Uh, they called themselves a democracy. It was obviously a joke. Um, but they were quite comfortable uh, being an autocratic authoritarian regime mm. because they thought it was a sense of uh, a source of strength Whereas the West was weak, and that's where they—that's why they went after, particularly during elections. Mm. And I mentioned the question of um, a communist mindset, but actually, in some ways, that's that's the acceptable language in the Soviet Union in the fifties, sixties, and seventies to say this is consistent with communism. One of the more interesting points, actually, in the book earlier on is about the long history of espionage in Russia and its culture before the KGB, and the way that some of these techniques definitely predated the KGB as an organization. I mean, you want to say a bit more about mm, that? Yes. Well, the interesting thing is that if you trace the history of Russia back to like 16th century, you can go back way back to Ivan the Terrible, Peter the Great, uh, even Catherine the Great, but certainly Ivan the Terrible and, and Peter, they had their own secret service, you know, going way back. And they used it in the same way that Putin does today in terms of suppressing dissent, you know, invest, you know, putting people under surveillance, having informants, uh, arresting people who just had a different view if you criticize the regime. So it goes way back. And under the Tsar Nicholas II of the 19th century, he had the same uh, structure, well, different structure, but same purpose. And his intelligence agency secret police were just as brutal as under Lenin, Stalin, and now Putin. And so the, the history of Russia is often about, is often about an authoritarian state 
whether it's former czars or um, or the Soviet Union or Putin today, because they're for them the security of their nation is the most important thing. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust, or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. This episode is supported by FX's Clipped, the scandalous story of the 2014 Clippers owner's racist remarks captured on tape and heard around the world. The series charts the tape's impact on a dysfunctional basketball organization striving to win against their reputation as the most cursed team in the league. Starring Lawrence Fishburne, Jackie Weaver, Cleopatra Coleman, and Ed O'Neill. FX's Clipped. Streaming June 4th, only on Hulu. That very much does seem to be um, something that makes a great deal of sense of Putin, which is that, yes, he does hark back to former Soviet borders, but also uh, Russian history doesn't start in 1917. There is a history of centuries of a strong empire, of strong imperial practices, mm. of a strong authoritarian centre with a leader at the heart of it all. And it does seem as though many of these uh, techniques draw on that tradition very, very strongly, much more so than just having been invented by communists. No, absolutely. And Putin has a bust of Peter the Great in his private office, where he obviously admires him, but Peter the Great, you know, obviously modernized Russia in, in, in a good way economically, but was just as brutal a tyrant as, as anyone else. So there's a, for some reason, and I think it's all about security and, 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 and stability, the Russian leaders you know, have no problem with having an authoritarian, totalitarian political system. Mm. And so... Uh, and the Russian people have really gone along with it, partly because they've been oppressed and forced into it. But also there's a large number of Russian people who, you know, they've never had democracy, not even in the 1990s mm. reality. And so for them, this is their world. And they, you know, certainly under the communist period, there was a certain amount of economic security for them. So for them to for Western uh, liberals to say, well, you know, you should have democracy and freedom of association, freedom of the press. For them, bread and, and water is, is, is the priority. Um, but it doesn't excuse what happened. Mm. But the KGB it, during the Cold War were very much used as a, as a political weapon as much as uh, in terms of the security of the state. So, yeah. Mm. Mm. And if, if we can home in maybe on how the KGB evolved that, uh, Russia very much had its own distinct culture of spying right down to terms. And the reason why we use terms like, say, compromat is because there isn't necessarily an equivalent, a direct equivalent in the West. Um, could you say more about the sort of language and ideas of, of Russian spying that are quite unique to, to the KGB? Well, I think uh, the KGB certainly institutionalized. Uh, the use of what they call compromat, which basically means compromising information. And so uh, the obvious example being honey trapping, where they actually had special schools in Russia and definitely in East Germany, where they would train professionally uh, men and women to be honey trappers, basically to, to teach them how to go to a NATO country, 
or the United States and how to, so for example, for the men, they were told how to seduce, you know, like lonely uh, secretaries in, in NATO's uh, office mm. who were sort of overworked and, you know, uh, they were told, you know, all their vulnerability, but it was done in a very professional way. And the Russian female KGB uh, agents, obviously, they're very attractive. <laughs> and uh, But they also, you know, it was done in a very professional way. It wasn't just go to London or Washington or Paris and, and go to a bar. They were actually trained to do it. And I'm sure... Uh, I'm sure MI6 and CIA and Mossad almost definitely well, I know that Mossad have used similar techniques, but I think it's less, I think <laughs> it's less institutional, it's less kind All of pervasive. organized. Yes. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. um, I mean, one of the interesting things, I mean, sometimes we tend to think of the sort of sexual side of compromat, and it's something that can work as a standalone thing. You talk in the book about how, uh, you know, the apartment has been wired up for sounds and video and somebody playing an irate husband walks in and immediately threatens them and so on. But sometimes it can be combined with other things as well. Mm. Um, you can very often have, for example, the two-pronged approach. There's initially um, a sexual indiscretion which is exploited. Uh, somebody feigns being a blackmailer for a pitifully small sum of money. Mm. And then, of course, once you've paid the small sum of money, you've actually given evidence that you really care about this yeah. stuff getting out. Yeah. So the, the financial follow-through is actually really where Compromat starts to kick in. Uh, yes, I mean, I think uh, the thing about the Compromat is that they're looking, they're not necessarily expecting someone to reveal state secrets over the phone mm. or if they're in bed with a, with a KGB agent. They're looking for vulnerabilities. They're looking for information that could be useful, either secrets or it could be the state of their marriage, which they could then use. Um, and the financial side is important. What they're more as interested in doing is is really uh, breaking up their marriage, uh, you know, basically threatening their political career. I mean, there's a whole chapter in the book about a conservative MP and uh, who was a critic of the Soviet Union during the Cold War mm. and actually went to Russia for business purposes, ironically. <laughs> and uh, he was very openly, publicly critical of the Soviet Union. And they went for him, basically. Mm. And KGB hired one of their operatives to honey trap him. And then they had the, the photographs. And then they kept the file. They didn't use it straight away. Mm. They kept the file so-called evidence for a pub and then when he continued being publicly critical of the Soviet Union then they then they unleashed the dogs they 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 leaked the material anonymously to British newspapers and MPs and ministers and so that's how they operated in terms of the financial side I think that's more with the Americans certainly the with the CIA and FBI traitors are more likely to of sold secrets for money than the British. I think British, it's more ideological, it's more complicated, um, and some fell for the compromise. Some British mm. agents clearly did, and there's some tragic stories in the book about that. My impression is that uh, the financial side is more with the Americans. Mm -hmm. And it's interesting how um, you mentioned the hoarding of material. Um, I mean, this stuff could be held on to for years sometimes. Um, and the way that this is managed, for instance, a lot of the time, the initial information that um, is being asked for is really quite innocuous stuff that could be found out publicly anyway. And it seems it's less about 
getting the person to become an overnight devoted spy and more about getting them to think, well, it won't do that much harm. I can get used to sending them the old thing, building up that relationship over time, which can then be further exploited. Yeah, that's a very good point because the MPs that they recruited, uh, the Labour MPs or left-wing Labour MPs, they were, you know, they were recruited as, you could call them agents, but in, in a sense, they were like, Assets, but they were people who the KGB would go and talk to, and they would get some political inside political information. But it wasn't like state secrets. Mm. But they they played a long game, and they were very uh, strategic in that sense of being patient and uh, realizing that you know it it takes a long time. If you're going to recruit someone as a spy, and they're an MP or even a minister, they're not going to hand over. Uh, state secrets straight away. It's going to take time and you have to sort of develop them and seduce them and, 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 and you have to be patient. So I think that's definitely true. Um, I mean, some some MPs, I mean, they, obviously the comic example is John Stonehouse, uh, you know, uh, just handed over stuff, uh, although he didn't really know the difference between secrets and... <laughs> um, but uh, I think the other, you know, I think they they definitely had... And that slightly surprised me. The KGB had certain relationships with more MPs than I realised, mm. but that doesn't necessarily mean they were traitors or spies, but they, it's in that grey area of being, well, agents of influence, really. Yes, um, or an intelligence asset, you know, yes. somebody who's being handled by, who's talking to an active yes. agent. Yes, it doesn't make them a traitor, mm. but it's on the edge there. And, it's a question uh, of judgment, certainly. Exactly, exactly. How did the um, the KGB adapt to the fall of the Soviet Union and theoretically their own abolition? Well, uh, officially, after the Soviet Union collapsed in 1989-1990 and then Yeltsin became president of Russia, officially the KGB was disbanded a lot of, you know, because they, they employed and they had hundreds of thousands of people. And a lot of them obviously lost their jobs. But in reality... Uh, the KGB was just restructured uh, and reconstitutionalized as what is known now called the, the FSB, the Federal Security Bureau. And so I thought when I was researching the book that actually the KGB had disbanded and this whole new organization had set up. And obviously it was new, but in reality, the same methods of disinformation and forgery and blackmailing and honey trapping and surveillance and recruiting agents of influence it's, the FSB since the end of the Cold War have been doing the same thing as the KGB and in some ways even more ruthless because, you know, when you look at the assassinations of Alexander Litvinenko mm -hmm. and other people that they've been involved in, in, in murdering, and it could be that during the Cold War the KGB did the same but just didn't get caught. But uh, the reality is that the FSB as it is today and operating in the war in Ukraine is that it's the same as the KGB in the old days, just under a different name. The difference is that in the old days, the KGB reported to the Communist Party, they were their bosses, mm. very much a directly political organization. Today, the FSB report to Putin himself and his own tiny coterie of people within his sort of elite within an elite. And so they are very much sort of Putin's private political mm. army almost. And there has also been some competition in recent years with the GRU, treading on to some of their old patch, although the GRU, which uh, was exposed as being very heavily involved in the Skripal killing, um, seems to be something of a faded entity, and it seems like the FSB has come back to the fore. 
Yeah, well, I think, you know, Putin had been head of the FSB and so before he became president. So he had a preference, I think, for that organization. And one of his most important advisors is a man called Petrushev. He had been head of the FSB again in the late 90s before Putin became president. And so there's that preference. And you're right, there was a certain turf war, I think, between the FSB, which has a lot of responsibilities within the Soviet Union as well as mm. externally. And the GRU is very much an external foreign. But I think uh, they still have a lot of power and influence. Mm. But um, FSB, I would say, is the preeminent agency. And um, as well as being a former head of the FSB, Putin himself is, of course, an old KGB officer. And he famously once said that there is no such thing as an ex-KGB officer. Now, although your book is mainly a work of history, it does come right up to date. So um, my final question really is, what, what are the lessons for now on the old KGB's campaigns of subversion in the West? Well, the lesson of the book and the lesson for, for people interested in what's happening now in Ukraine is that the war in Ukraine, uh, the same methods are being used currently by the FSB in the war as, as the KGB were doing during the Cold War. And even though we have a sort of hot war, as it were, in Ukraine, the same methods of disinformation and um, hacking and disinformation and forgery and recruiting of agents and surveillance and all those same operas are still being used today. The only difference between now and the Cold War with the KGB is that now the technology is different. So they can unleash through social media account, fake social media accounts, a sheer volume of disinformation and, and lies and fake documents and all the rest of it through the power of technology. And so it's just really a matter of scale, really, and methodology. But the same mindset is there. I mean, basically, Putin and the FSB now understand and believe that information is as important and, and as the actual military conflict, if you want to uh, retain the support of your of the Russian people, or you want to keep up the morale of the Russian army, the information war is just as important as weapons. And so that's where uh, that's where it's it's relevant, really, because mm -hmm. I think hopefully people can draw on the history of the KGB in 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 my book and actually understand that actually this is where it comes from. Wonderful. Mark, it's been fascinating. Um, thanks so much for joining me in the bunker. Mark's book, Agents of Influence, How the KGB Subverted Western Democracies, is a forensic and fun read and is out now. And listeners, thank you for joining us. We'll be back soon with another edition. And if you enjoy the podcast, remember you can support us on Patreon from just £3 a month. You'll be supporting us to make shows like The Bunker, Oh God, What Now?, and the new series of Arthur Snell's Doomsday Watch. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next time. The Bunker Daily was written and presented by Seth Tavo. The producers were Alex Reese and Kasia Tomashevich. The lead producer was Jacob Jarvis, with audio production by me, Jade Bailey. The group editor is Andrew Harrison. With music by Kenny Dickinson and artwork by James Parrott, The Bunker is a Podmasters production.